May the words I speak and the words we hear be your words of life to us, our God. Amen. Amen. So welcome to Lent. How are you all feeling about that? Excited? But ho-hum? Maybe a little anxious? I don't know. Well, it is Lent, and as we do every year, we begin it by listening to the story of Jesus in the wilderness, which is usually entitled something like The Temptation of Christ, which can be a little misleading. Some of you might know this, but I keep little bags of mini peanut slabs in my office, and I have one a day at morning tea. But on Fridays, when I'm writing sermons, I'm often tempted to eat one or two, or maybe three in the afternoon while I'm writing my sermon. And that's the problem with this word temptation. It kind of gets reduced to, did Jesus fall for it and eat the chocolate, as I sometimes do. Well, more than, more than once on Friday, let's face it. Fridays are not great days for not eating chocolate, even in Lent. I think it's probably, and a number of the commentators I read uh, say that actually this is much more about testing. Testing is a better word. And so what is Jesus being tested about? He's being tested about his new title, the Beloved Son. So if we put this reading back to where it fits in Luke's Gospel, he has just been at the Jordan where he was baptised by John, and as he was baptised, he was filled with the Holy Spirit, and as he was praying, a voice was heard saying, You are my Son, the Beloved. And then the Spirit, as we heard this morning, leads Jesus out into the wilderness, where he wrestles with what it means to be the Son of God. Now, we think this is a pretty flash thing, Son of God, and it would be pretty straightforward. But in fact, he's not the only one that was Son of God, is he? Just before this is the genealogy of Luke, which finishes with Adam, who was entitled Son of God. Amongst the titles given to David, King David, is Son of God. And at the time that Jesus lived, there was another son of God, a much more impressive son of God, Caesar Tiberius. In his name, is, in his title is Son of God, Prince of Peace. So, in each of these lived out that whole son of God thing in very diverse ways. So how was Jesus going to live out the Son of God title? How did he understand it? And how was he going to live that every day and in, in his interactions with the people around him? Now in the NRSV, the first test starts with the Satan devil saying, If... And we read that with, you know, there's a bit of doubt. Are you really? But actually, the way the word is constructed in the Greek, there is no doubt. The devil isn't saying, are you, aren't you, I don't really get it. It's a since. Since you are the Son of God, 
let's have some let's have some tests here. So, and in the Common English Bible, which I read the the uh, gospel readings from, it translates that word as since. So there is no doubt about this. The real question is, what kind of son of God will Jesus be? And so then there are these three tests. And it would be interesting to think about how another son of God, Tiberius, might have reacted to those three tests. So the first test then was Jesus starving after not eating for 40 days. It's a wonder he could even move, really. And, well, Tiberius would never have experienced that. He was uh, a Roman elite, and even on his military campaigns, he would have had more than enough food to eat. Maybe simple food, but still enough food to eat. And I can imagine his response to being told, you have power to turn stones to bread, his response would have been, yes please, that sounds like a good power to have. There would have been, wouldn't have been a moment's hesitation. And then the next test is all about having authority and power over all the world. Well, that was what Rome was all about, conquering all the known world and bringing it under Roman domination. So I can't imagine Tiberius would have hesitated for too long on that one either. As an aside, it kind of intrigues me that we mostly take the devil's word for it in Luke. So even in some of the commentaries I read were like, I wonder how the devil got authority over all the world given that in the world that Luke and Jesus lived in, it was generally accepted that God had ultimate authority over all kingdoms and over all the world. And my response was, why are we taking the devil's word for it? Like, isn't that part of what the devil does? Lie and trick? Maybe, maybe even that statement was a lie and trick. Because ultimately, the devil does not have authority. And it is not up to the devil to give authority over those kingdoms. Maybe we've fallen for it, but Jesus didn't. I think Tiberius would have. And then the last one, leaping off the highest pinnacle in the temple, and angels coming to gather you up so that you don't get injured. I mean, what a spectacle. And if you were into fame and power and glory, well, wouldn't you be up for that? I can imagine Tiberius saying, what? Even more fame and glory than I already have? And all I have to do is jump? Sure, I'll do that. And I could be even more glorious than I am at the moment. So these seem like quite interesting tests. But they are at, at heart about how Jesus sees himself as Son of God and how that compares with the other Son of God who's around at the time. And then we would think about, well, how would David or Adam or any of the others in the Bible who are called Son of God, how would they do that? And it's a bit harder to tell with them because at times they're quite good and at other times they really flunk it. So they're a bit more like us. These tests are about who Jesus is and what he was about. 
And each of these tests shows something of who Jesus is, how he, filled with the Spirit, will live as the beloved Son. Or at least, how he won't live as the beloved Son. How he will live as the beloved Son comes next. The rest of the Gospel is really about what it means to be the beloved Son. And we need to read what comes next. And what comes next acts as a contrast to that wilderness testing. And so if we were to read on, we would hear how Jesus is then led to Galilee, where he acts out how he understands being the Son of God, and eventually ends up in Nazareth, where he reads from the scroll of Isaiah. The Spirit of God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me. He has sent me to preach good news to the poor, to proclaim release to the prisoners and recovery of sight to the blind, to liberate the oppressed and to proclaim the year of the Lord's favour. And then he finishes by declaring all that fulfilled. So in contrast to what the devil was offering in the wilderness, Jesus now declares this is what it means to be the Son of God, the beloved Son of God. To be the beloved Son is to bring into being the vision of true community that is at the heart of that passage from Isaiah, is at the heart of the whole of Isaiah, and in fact the heart of all Scripture. Jesus is saying that he is the means by which God's desire for all humanity is to be fulfilled. That through Jesus there will be life-giving community where people will live with each other in ways that allow all people to thrive and all of life to thrive. That's what, as I said a couple of weeks ago, the word shalom means. It's not peace. It's about completion and wholeness when things are as God intends them to be. And when things are as God intends them to be, then there will be God's peace on earth. And so Jesus then lives out that fulfillment in his healing, which we see as an individual thing, but actually it was about restoring people back into their families and back into the community, in his casting out of demons, again restoring people back into their families and back into their communities, healing communities, creating true community, and in his teaching. And over the last three weeks, we have been listening to one of those blocks of teaching, the Sermon on the Plain, which acts as a follow-up to what Jesus said in Nazareth. And it contrasts to what happens to Jesus in the wilderness. All of these work with each other. They're very close together in Luke's Gospel. And if you were reading Luke's Gospel from beginning to end, which is how it's intended to be written, these things are banging up against each other. So in the wilderness, Jesus is invited to be absorbed by his own needs for food, for power, and for prestige, and to give in to those powers which destroy true community. In this sermon, the Sermon on the Plain, he lays out the value system that lies at the heart of the year of the Lord's favour and the way it is to be lived out. 
It is the kind of community that we pray for every time we pray the Lord's Prayer. Your will be done on earth. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as in heaven. And so here he is, Jesus, on a level place, not on a mountain as in Matthew's Gospel, but a level place, which is sometimes seen as a broken place, but also a place where no one is more elevated than anyone else. Some commentators suggest that maybe the geography reinforces his words. And he reverses his society's reverence of the rich and the powerful, and he describes the poor and the hungry and the homeless and the grieving as the people of utmost importance. True community places these at the centre, not the rich and powerful, not the other Son of God. And that is very different, that is a very different vision from what the tester was offering Jesus in the wilderness. And it was a very different vision from how his society worked, and it's very different from how our society works. And then Jesus goes on to describe how those who looked to follow him were to join him living the reign of God. Living as we pray, your will be done. And as we talked about two weeks ago, this is the way of living, of loving and doing good and blessing and praying for. Which we sometimes think is kind of Jesus saying you should be a doormat, but actually it's about the way of non-violent resistance. Resisting the people and the forces that true that destroy true community. And we can see that kind of nonviolent resistance in the stories of Tefiti Romai and Puhu Kakahi of Parihaka and Taranaki, Mahatma Gandhi in India, and Martin Luther King Jr. in the United States. And then last week we heard the way of humility, being willing to acknowledge our limitations and failings, acknowledging the log in our own eye rather than seeing only the speck in the other person's eye, which is not one of my favourite bits of teaching because I much prefer looking at the speck in the other person's eyes if I'm honest. True community is not built around entrenched positions, ignoring the log in our own eyes and thinking that we are always right. True community is built from a place where I can say, I might not have this right, or I simply don't know. And when we look around the world, we, we, we can see when people start from entrenched positions of self-interest with no humility, and we can see the result of that. The war in the Ukraine is the result of that. People starting from entrenched positions of self-interest with no humility on all sides. The absence of humility breaks community. The absence of humility and the use of violence is what the tester was offering Jesus in the wilderness. And Jesus wasn't having a bar of it. And all of that sits behind us as we enter Lent. I should have had another picture so on other years, I might have said something now about Lent being a time for us to reflect on how we fare with these tests ourselves. Because we are tested all the time. And I actually think we often get this the wrong way around. So 
A friend of mine down at Christchurch sent out one of the traditional collects, and that traditional collect talks about how Jesus was tempted as we are tempted. And in, and in part that's true, but I think the more helpful way of looking at it is how are we tested as Jesus is tested? Like Jesus wasn't tempted to have chocolate like I am. But Jesus was tested about his core identity and how he was going to live that out. And so the wilderness experience is really about how are we tested in our core identity as beloved children of God and how we are led away from living that out. That's what the wilderness experience is for us. As beloved children of God who pray your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as in heaven, how do we respond to this group of stories, the wilderness, this teaching at Nazareth, the teaching on the plain? How does that affect and influence how we see ourselves and how we live that out? But honestly, that just feels like hard work. And I'm very aware of the fact that the last two years have been pretty tough. And many of us are feeling a little jaded and tired. And if we're honest, the last two years have been a test. A test of who we are and how we live all of this stuff out. So I'm not feeling like we need much more to wear us down because... This vision of community that Jesus was offering wasn't something that was supposed to wear us down and exhaust us. It was supposed to be something that gives life. It was supposed to be a life-giving vision that enlivened people and energised people and allowed them to live in different ways. This vision of the community that Jesus was offering was filled with the Spirit, the life-giving Spirit. And today is also our AGM, so I'm glad to see a few more people have turned up. AGMs can also be a little ho-hum on our uh, Episcopal Ministry Team meeting. Uh, one, of the, one of the Archdeacons said it was her least favourite Sunday of the year. But actually, I, I quite enjoy them because they're, they are, I mean, they're a bit ho-hum, but they're also a chance for us to think back over the last year and to give thanks. To give thanks for the way that we have lived God's life in the last year. That, to give thanks for the way that God has been present in our midst, given life. The way that God has worked through us to offer life to our wider community. It's a chance to stop and reflect and to know that God has been at work in our midst. So given all of that, I wonder, now I'll go back to the questions. This Lent, what do you give thanks for? That's a pretty unusual question for Lent, isn't it? We don't normally start Lent with what do you give thanks for? But I think this year we just need to stop and say, what do we give thanks for? What has been life-giving for you? What are the times and moments that you have experienced God's life? What has been life-giving for us as a church community? 
And what is it God might wish for this church community in the year ahead? And lastly, how might Lent be a time for you to, to experience God's life? Because really, that's what Lent is about. That's what all the giving stuff up is about. It's a, that's what all the repentance is about. It's about us being more immersed in the life of God. So how might you this Lent and how might we this Lent be more deeply anchored in the life of God?